So when I was 16, uh, Christmas, my parents, uh, one of my presents under the Christmas tree uh, was shaped well like this. And I opened this up, and it was, it was this Bible right here. My parents gave it to me at 16. And I've had it ever since. And uh, I don't usually preach from it because it's like duct taped together in parts. Um, I do, sometimes I'll do weddings with it because it feels nostalgic to me. But um, I don't usually have it up here. But I wanted to bring it up here today because um, uh, in the very beginning, it's maybe the Bible that you, I don't know what your first Bible was, right? Uh, and I probably had one before this. I probably had some like kids cartoon one. This is the first one I remember. <clears throat> they had a spot for like filling in some information. Um, so it was not only like your name and address and phone number, which by the way, has changed like seven times. So it just gets crossed out and added on, which is a stupid the effectiveness and that's not great. But it had a spot for births, uh, marriages, occasions to remember, uh, and deaths. And I remember looking at a lot of old Bibles that they used to function almost like as a, this is our family tree. We're going to do a lot of personal information at the very beginning. This is like part of our heritage. This Bible has been passed down from generations, and this is your great-grandpa's signature and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. Well, one of the spots at the very beginning was a certificate of marriage, which isn't a legit certificate of marriage, but you're supposed to, like, you know, record the information in there, and so you put your personal information in. Well, I was 16 at the time, so I wrote, this certifies that Brent Johnson and, and then I wrote, somebody hot got married <laughs> on June, and then I added it after the fact. I actually scribbled it out and wrote it in my wife's name, and I fished what I wished, guys. So I got it. At 16, I had no idea that that would be the case. Uh, but I remember when my parents gave me this Bible, uh, my parents were uh, pastors. I grew up in a, like, not only just a Christian home, but like a very, very religious home. So anytime the doors were open at the church, we were there because he was employed by them and we had to be there. So and that was part of it. Uh, but I remember that they, when they gave it to me, they didn't give me like a lot of great instructions. And, and, and maybe the same thing for you, like your very first Bible that you ever got. I doubt somebody handed it to you and go, all right, here's the deal. There's two testaments in here, two different sections of this. Uh, involved in those two different sections are basically three different covenants, right? Uh, the first covenant being that, the one that God made with Abraham, being a covenant with an individual. The second one being a covenant with, that God made with Israel, being a nation. And then a third covenant, the one that's all nations, that's what the New Testament kind of literature is all about. Nobody explained that to you. And right now, you're like, if that's true, that makes a lot more sense than you wish that somebody would have said, you're going to read a lot, of, a lot of different things. It's going to factor into one of these three areas. Uh, and that would help make sense of all of the stuff that you had read, but it just wasn't there. And so, unfortunately, as a result of that, not having this kind of as a background, as a filter by which to read some things, there can be some things that you come across and I came across as a teenager that I go, that's just weird. Like, a couple of them were like, I can't believe that's in the Bible. Dude, check this out. Like, whatever. Uh, but then just other things that just begin to not make sense. And so um, because I had probably a Christian heritage and, and, and you know, I'd been like my whole life, it didn't shake me as much as maybe some of my friends who had read it or maybe you or whatever. And you begin to walk away because what you found uh, was actually in this scripture that you're supposed to read and have this huge reverence for and we're supposed to be, you know, uh, not putting any, any cup, coffee cups on top of it or whatever. Um, you, you, you read that and you go, I can't, one, it doesn't make sense to me, and I don't think that I can reconcile it with the actual way that I'm supposed to live my life. Like, I'm, I want to be, be reverential for the Bible, um, but if that's included, like, there's some, just some things in there that just don't match up, and so, or, or you've, you know, you've lived your life long enough on the internet to know that there are people who have issues with the Bible and some of the things that it says and the contradictions and the this and that and the other thing, right? Uh, and you're just like, I don't know, I just know that I'm, I know that Britain talks about it once in a while and I'm supposed to own one uh, and, and probably should read it and I don't read it as much as I should. That's kind of been our, our, our philosophy on it. So here, here's the deal. If you have ever uh, lost faith or you feel like you're losing faith, 
as a result of something that you read in the Bible, right? Or you're watching this online. Maybe you're not here because I don't know why you'd be here. But if you've lost faith, and mostly it was because something in here that you read that just didn't reconcile with reality for you, then the concept of this series, the reason I want to talk about Irresistible is I think that perhaps you may have walked away unnecessarily because when I read through uh, the New Testament teachings and the person, the teaching of Jesus, people found him to be irresistible. And you, for whatever reason, have found the Bible to be very resistible. And in, in, in a sense, you've carried that on to the church becomes resistible and then it becomes optional and becomes, you know, whatever. Or, or maybe like you, you like the community that is involved in coming to a church. You love the free childcare, the coffee, whatever. It's just that the Bible still, I'm still have lots of questions about it. And, and and it doesn't help to be like, well, you should just read it because I have, and it's weird. And so I don't know what to do with all of, all of that. So that's been the point of this series. The point of the series has been looking at this and going, all right, did you know that there are old covenant literature and then there are new covenant literature? And I think you do yourself a disservice when you don't know that and read them as such. So today, what I want to look at is a passage that comes from uh, the book of Acts, which, uh, again, the Bible's not a book. It's a collection of different books. Luke was a guy who uh, was one of Jesus' disciples, not one of the 12, but one of his, the people who were kind of early on in this thing. He was a Gentile author, probably a doctor is what we can assume, who wrote a letter to a friend. And in the beginning of his letter in the book of Luke, he writes, hey, there's a lot of things out there. I am taking it upon myself to write an orderly account, Mr. Theophilus guy, about what I saw so that I can help you kind of in your walk make a decision if you want to kind of integrate and reorient your life around the person, the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so he writes Luke, and then later on, he writes the book of Acts. Luke is primarily about Jesus and his life. Acts is about the actions, A-C-T-S, the acts of the apostles post-resurrection. So he begins the story by talking about the ascension to heaven, uh, and then he goes, here's what the disciples did as a result of this. Again, remember, his last words to his disciples were, go and take this whole message and spread it to the entire world. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And what we found is that they nodded in agreement, but then did nothing with it, right? And it's the same thing that your doctor said to you. Hey, you should really cut back on the this and that thing for the holidays and make sure you get out and run. You're going, absolutely, we'll definitely get on that. Uh, and then you just, it's been two years. You, sh- you show up next year for your annual physical, and his first question is, so what happened? How did, you, how, how did that fare for you? And you're like, uh, dude, next week I'm getting on this thing, and we're going to run this thing. We're going to make this thing happen, right? So in the same way that we do that in our personal fitness and finance and, and you know, all that kind of stuff, the disciples did this with their religion. They just never really expanded it. They're like, that makes sense. Take this to the whole world. He was so great, and he died and he was resurrected. We've never seen anything like that. That, makes, that seems like an important story to share for the world. And then, like last week, we talked about how it took him 12 years to make himself to Joppa, which is about 15 miles uh, west of that, not really even non-Jewish, not really into the uttermost parts of the earth at all, and he probably felt like he was doing a huge deal. So then, then the story goes uh, that he calls, uh, he gets called in like this dream, this trance from God. Uh, the, 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 the story, you should read it for yourself, but the, there's a, a sheet that comes down with all kinds of animals, and he's like, kill and eat these animals, and, and Peter goes, I would never, I would never. Lord, I would never make myself unclean by eating those animals. And Jesus, uh, there's voice, not I say Jesus, but this voice says, do not call uh, something unclean that I have called clean. Side note, Peter takes him a while, but he then begins to register in his brain going, I don't know that that's about necessarily food. It's probably about food as well, but I think it might be about people. Immediately afterwards, a, a call to go up to Cornelius up in Caesarea, who's a centurion, who's not Jewish, who's a Gentile, who doesn't have all the background, and Peter responds, okay, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go into his house, and I'm even going to eat with him. Then what happens is he comes back down. People go, hey, 
There's a rumor going around you were hanging out with uh, some Gentiles, some non-Jewish people, and not only did you go into their house, but you ate with them? Tell me it's not true, Peter. Tell me that you didn't actually do that. Tell me that you didn't succumb to those standards and you're kind of letting yourself slip and you're being, you know, oh, I don't know. We're, we're kind of, that's pretty liberal of you. Be careful, right? And he goes, I did, and here's why. And he begins to tell him the story about here's what happened, here's what happened, here's what happened. Um, as a result of it, Barnabas is sent up from the church. He hears the story. He goes, finally, people are taking action. He goes and he recruits Paul, who, who had made his way to Tarsus. And he says, if anybody's going to reach these, this Gentile world, I cannot wait for the rest of these disciples because they're just, it took them 12 years to get this far. We need something different. Let's go get Paul. He spends a year in Antioch. It says, this is where we finish the story, teaching and preaching to the people of Antioch in the early church, trying to tell them what it means to follow Jesus Christ. So the story picks up there. Um, after uh, 15 Paul is in Antioch. It's 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It's full of a bunch of Gentile believers. There's some Jewish, there's a Jewish community. There's a Jewish church, like, because the primary, uh, the early converts of Christianity were primarily Jewish. Uh, but then they've got this influx of Gentile people, and they're trying to figure out, because that's the, what the community is, they're trying to figure out how do we integrate these two things? How do we, with our Jewish heritage, knowing that Jesus introduced something new, and we're supposed to reach these people, but there's like these cultural differences, like we just... We just can't get past these things. And imagine, imagine growing up in a household that is fairly conservative on this, on this one area and then inviting people in and they have no, their, their conscience doesn't meet up with your conscience. The thing that twins your conscience and tweaks your conscience doesn't do that for them. Um, and, and so there's like this battle that's going back and forth with all of this. Chapter 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses... You cannot be saved. Immediately, there's drama involved. This is the point of the story. If you're reading this, you're like, Peter's doing some good things. Sounds like Paul is going to get on his way. Like, everything's kind of starting to, the, the ball is starting to, uh, the snowball effect is starting to take place in this way. And then all of a sudden, a little bit of a, a curveball comes in from, from uh, the, the outside because some Jewish believers, some circumcised believers, as we'll find out, which basically means um, they had gone through, they were, they were Jewish to the point of circumcision and now had crossed the line of faith and were still trying to live out and figure out what it means to say yes to Jesus. Uh, and does that necessarily mean we have to say no to the law of Moses? If we say yes to the law of Jesus, can't we kind of like integrate the law of Moses? Aren't there really good things over here that we could potentially say? And I, by the way, we've been doing this our whole life. We're kind of good at this stuff. Really hard to let go over here. They hear that Paul is up preaching in Antioch and is having some success and the church is growing and they're concerned. Why are they concerned? Because we've gone through a lot, snip, snip, to be in the position that we're at. We don't want it to be so easy for them kind of thing. So by the way, I don't know if you guys know this, if we think it's really, really cool that a lot of Gentile, you Gentile people are coming to know and coming and asking questions about Jesus because we think he's amazing. Um, but just so you do know, there are some, some laws of Moses that we have not fully left that you're going you're gonna to need to... Uh, you're going to need to participate in some of those, right? And they probably did it in coded language at first. Like, we think it's really cool. There's just a few small things. And they're like, oh, cool, what are they? Well, it's going to be involved circumcision. It's like that quick, nah, like that quick, uh, nah, nah, we're not going to do that. Uh, it was easy for you as an eight-day-old to engage in that. I'm 40. So how does that translate for me? Like, what's the, pro I don't even want to know the process. I'm out, right? That's basically what's happening. 
with this. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Um, the, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed in Antioch, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. In other words, these Gentiles are coming to this church, and they, Paul has been there for years telling them, this is who Jesus was. This is who Jesus was. We watched him die. We watched him die. We watched him rise from the dead. Here's his teachings. Here's his new ethics. Here's his new thing. You can get on board with this. And they're coming out of pagan uh, religion. They're coming out of like this plethora of options where religion was more like a business, and it was an obligation. It wasn't anything important. It didn't actually affect your life. It was just in the realm of politics. And to hear something that actually has an effect on life that begins to make sense, they're on board for this. And then all of a sudden, they're getting these mixed messages from people who they thought were on their team but were in a distant area. And now they're like, we don't know. Why don't you, why don't you guys, you guys need to go figure this out. Why don't you go back down to Jerusalem, talk to all of them, and figure out what's all involved in this. So they go back down, uh, and the church decides to call their very first annual business meeting right? If you've ever been a part of a business meeting before, they're super exciting. You should always go. Um, and luckily for us, Luke decides to record the meeting minutes of the business meeting, and there's only one thing on the agenda. And the one thing on the agenda was this, the Gentiles' relationship to the law of Moses. What is the Gentiles' relationship to the law of Moses? What expectations do we have for them? Coming from a non-Jewish background, like this is easy for us because we all grew up Jewish. It was in our home. It was in our household. That was like traditions and stuff that we knew. But they're not. What is the connection? Do, is there, are there anything that they need to do as a result of these things? Which is important, guys. Because you and I, unless you're Jewish and I don't know about it, but it, for the most part, you and I, I'm going to probably make a general assumption, are not Jewish, do not have that. So this is talking about our relationship to the law and the prophets, which they would, or the Old Testament, which they would call the law and the prophets. We have got this rich heritage all of this history, all of these different processes and ceremonial cleanliness and, and all of these things, what is their relationship, a.k.a. our relationship with the Old Testament? This is why this is so important. This is what's changed for us. All right. Verse 5, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Uh, at, by the way, Pharisees here, by the way, did, did you catch that? Like, do you, do you understand the significance of that? Because... A few chapters, or sorry, a few uh, letters earlier, so you're talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Pharisees were the people who were asking Jesus the questions, trying to back him into a corner. The Pharisees were the ones, when they, were, they, were, um, they went to the, the high priest and said, we, we really want him killed, we want him out of here. And, and, and were the, the ones that led the charge with the people, saying, uh, instead of Barabbas, we want to kill Jesus. Give us the murderer, give us the guy who's like the you know, serial killer, we would rather kill Jesus. These, this is the Pharisees. Imagine taking such a public stance against something, and then why now, why about 15, 12 to 15 years later, you're now in a position that's high enough on the leadership chain where you get to stand up and say something in the Jerusalem council for the church. That's significant, you guys. Like, what would it take? We don't like to change our minds publicly at all. If we ever go public with something, and then we find out we're wrong, we rarely acknowledge our wrongness. We usually just slink off or claim that we had misinformation, or we, that's not really what we said, you misunderstood us, right? Um, or that I have an accent, you probably heard the wrong, that's what happened. So we, we don't like changing our minds publicly, yet they did. Why? What would it take? Do you think it was the Sermon on the Mount that changed their minds? Do you think that the, after Jesus died, they reflected back on the, wow, you know what? No, he had, we were wrong. He had some really good things to say in the Sermon on the Mount. Or that prodigal son story, that was just brilliant, so good. I doubt it. I think it's something more significant than that. I think one of the evidences for 
um, the resurrection. It's not just, well, the Bible says it, so that settles it, and we just, that's what we believe. When you look at this, what would it take for somebody like the Pharisees to, a couple of years later, be convinced that they were wrong, and not only just wrong in opinion, that they killed the wrong guy, and now they want to be on the team? Probably because they watched him die, and then they heard stories, or some of them even physically saw him raised from the dead. That would change my mind about who I'd be like, I was wrong. I was totally wrong. He raised from the dead. I don't know how they do that, so I'm in. I, I don't get it, but I'm now, I, I, don't, I can't argue with myself. And even if people are like, yeah, but weren't you the one that, like, you were against him? Yeah, but he rose from the dead, so I was wrong. So now I'm in. Do you know what I mean? All right, anyways, that's a side note. Moving on. Uh, verse 7, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. In other words, you've heard the story. I was at the, the Tanner's house in Joppa, and I had this sheet come down. Don't call unclean what God has made clean. You guys know this story. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. I don't know that we understand the seismic shift in thinking involved in that little statement right there, that Peter had gotten to a point, he's trying to lead them to this point too. Do we truly believe that God loves, is, uh, excuse me, God loves Gentile nations as much as he loves us? Do we believe that his salvation efforts, do we believe that the, the redemption that comes with the grace involved, do, do we believe that that is extended to the same as us? The same as us, or is it Israel first and everybody else kind of second, but that's fine, it's, you're still in, don't worry. Because right now he's claiming that any sort of special election that we had is no longer valid. It's null and void. Any sort of special treatment or special preference that we had is not really in play anymore. We had an original old, a, a covenant as a nation with God, but after the whole destruction of everything that in the temple and the whole nation and our rebelliousness and, and just as a nation, our inability to kind of keep our side of the contract, that is gone. And what Jesus, what I remember about Jesus is his coming, him coming on the scene and in the last supper with all of us, all of his most important disciples, breaking bread and saying, this is my body that's broken for you and this wine is poured out as a new covenant. He kept saying new. He kept saying new. God is a God of covenants. We know that. We, we, uh, we lived our life entirely on the covenant of the, of the law of Moses, but now he's talking about this new covenant, and I really do think this new thing is not just specially marked for people who call themselves Israelites. I think it's for everybody, just as it was and just as he did for us. That's significant, because what I said, I, I, I've talked about this throughout the series, is that when you read Old Covenant literature, God did not love the world equally. God loved Israel most. And you can read it because when, uh, excuse me, uh, when David would write his psalms, he would use language like, God, please smite my enemies. Destroy the people who rise up against me. Or, or, in, in, or you would write it in past tense. Thank you for defending me against the curses and the, the, the activity of my enemies. Thank you for loving me more than you love them. God raised up a kingdom, a nation, in history. He worked within the language of that, but then that thing died, and this brand new thing takes place. 
And according to Peter, he's trying to come to the grips with, I don't think God just loves Israel anymore. I think he loves everybody. I think he did at one point, or at least the perception for us was that he did because he's trying to you know, show us what that would look like and what it would mean to be in a contractual relationship. But now we've moved beyond that. And this new covenant is with all nations. What was once reserved for Jews is now available for everyone. All right, moving on. Verse 10. Now then, why do you try and test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? In other words, come on, guys. There's so many rules involved with our Jewish scriptures and the law of the prophets. We can't even do it. Come on. Bill, you know. Come on. You know how difficult this is. You, you're, you think you're so high and mighty, but like all the, the how the sacrificial system works and pilgrimaging to Jerusalem for Passover weekend. I mean, it's tough, man, and being ceremonially unclean, but you know, working with dead animals as a tanner, uh, whatever. It's, it, it's, uh, it's a difficult process. We can't, we've made it incredibly difficult for us, and then here's what we're going to do. We who grew up with it our entire life are going to assume that somebody who has no history of this and no family uh, background to kind of support this is going to adopt this? Like, that's impossible, guys. He answers his own question rhetorically. Verse 11, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter's getting there. He's trying to lead these people through it to understand that Jesus, and it took him 20 years to discover this, by the way. Jesus wasn't an and, he was an instead of. He's not an and. It's not a Judaism 2.0. It's not Judaism reinvented. It's something completely different. Then, the story goes on. The council continues. Uh, a guy named James stands up. James is famous for being the brother of Jesus, which is significant, because what would it take for you to convince your brother that you were the savior of the world? I mean, like, that would be, again, probably resurrection would be the only thing for me. You've acted like Lord over me your entire life, and I never really believed it, and then now I can't deny it. So he becomes, he, by the way, is a non-follower of Christ prior to the resurrection, and then becomes like this, all right, I missed it, and I lived with him, crazy, um, becomes the, basically the pastor of the local um, church. Peter would operate as the CEO of the entire Christianity organization. Um, James was the local pastor at the local expression of the church in Jerusalem. He stands up. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is his summary statement. This is his, if, you have, if I have any authority in this matter, if my opinion is of value at all, here's what I think. By the way, this phrase right here, this verse, has been on a little post-it note in my office since the day that we started this church. This has been the marching orders uh, for everything that we do. Um, you thought that we were, you know, so cute and original. They came up with this, we're, we want to be a church for people who don't typically like church. That's cute that they came up with that. We didn't. We stole it from right here. This is where we stole it from. Uh, we changed the wording up because it makes a little bit more sense for us in this way. Uh, but our goal is to not make it difficult for people who are turning to Christ. If you come to a 101, I've talked about this story. In fact, this story is so familiar. Like, I've heard this somewhere before. Probably at every 101 I've ever done since we started this church. And I usually end it right here. We're going to continue because what he says next, this, this, is, this is fantastic for why we do church the way that we do church. And it's so brilliant. But the next phrase, what he decides to send in response is further defining our role and our relationship with the Old Testament. Our role and our responsibilities to adhere to some of the uh, old covenant literature, and here's the system that all of the, most, most of all of these Jewish people had grown up with their entire life. 
and it defines your relationship with half of your Bible, which is, I think this is important. Verse 20, instead, we should write to them, telling them this, to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Probably not what you're expecting to come as a result of that part. I kind of had set it up as to be like this really ominous, like, oh, deep, like the words all make sense. And so we should put that on a banner and hang it somewhere. Imagine that being in a banner in our lobby. <laughs> right? <laughs> it would be weird. You'd be like, oh, I came to the wrong place. No, it's church. I know. I'm, I'm out. This is not... That's not what I signed up for. This is their words of advice for them. Now, before you're like, this is so weird. It's, it feels a little bit like he cherry-picked a couple of the things from the Old Testament, but he's not even good at that because these aren't even the best things in the Old Testament, right? You would think that if you're going to cherry-pick, you would have gone with at least one of the ten. Don't steal. That feels like a really good one, guys. Don't murder. Even a better one. That's even better. Way to go. Let's do a couple more. And he picks this, like, don't eat, mood, or, sorry, don't eat food given to idols, like, okay, um, meat that's been strangled or blood, like, all of those involve food. We can see the commonality with that. And then there's this, like, curveball out of left. And sexual immorality, which we don't even know how to define. We're like, that feels very broad. If I gave you, like, a three-by-five card and said, everybody write down on your three-by-five card what you think sexual immorality is, you'd be like, can you imagine I go through the responses up here? Oh, that's an interesting one. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it would be so weird. Why? So that then if you, had read, if you read this question and you read it critically, right, you would ask yourself, like I would ask myself, why these? Why not the others? Why select these? And I think the definition of why these is critically important for you and I understanding our relationship with our first half of our Bible, or first three quarters of our Bible. Let's walk through these real quick. Three of them involve food. Why? Because dining together was a symbol of community. Um, their church times would centralize around food. Um, when you go out to eat with a friend, it's just like a matter of like if it's convenient and our schedules match up. But every once in a while, you'll have somebody over to your house that you're trying to get to know, and you do it around a meal. You, you typically don't do it around, hey, I'm going to be reading the paper. Do you want to come read the paper with me, right? Um, that's weird. But for whatever reason, dining together works, which, why does it work? Because I, I, you have to eat, I guess, and there's a lot of variety, and it just, it just makes a lot of sense, all right? It was a symbol for them of a coming together. Um, so what they know is that in Antioch, there are going to be a core group of Jewish believers who have grown up their entire life with a, we will eat this, we won't eat this, we can't eat this, we don't eat this, we don't touch that, and we don't do this mixing in with a group of Gentile believers who did not have any of that background, where pretty much everything was fair game. And by the way, the food that's been offered to the idols was actually cheaper, so we're going to be fiscally responsible, we're going to eat that. But that would be ultra offensive to these people. So they're saying, all right, listen, there's going to be some times where you are going to be coming together, and out of a courtesy for the people whose conscience hasn't quite matched up to their current status. They're on board with the new thing of Jesus, but sometimes it's really hard to let go of what you've come from and what's been a habit for you. Mentally, you can go, I know, I'm, I know it's fine. I know I shouldn't feel bad about it, but there's, a, there's just something in me. I feel bad about it. I feel like my grandpa who's dead is watching down from heaven going, ah, 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 right? And so I don't, I don't know what to do with this. Out of a courtesy for those people, 
don't eat these things that would be incredibly offensive for them. They might even say, it's fine, it's fine, don't worry about it, it's just not for me. But just don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk. This is the same thing. If you've got a buddy who's trying to, you know, get, um, uh, tr- trying to stop drinking, he, he realizes he's got this problem, and he's going to AA, and he's coming over to your house, right? What's a stupid thing to do? Pour out this, like, five-year scotch and be like, dude, this is delicious. I know you're not drinking right now, but that's terrible because this is so good, right? You're just a jerk. Stop. Don't do that. Don't be an idiot, right? We all get that. We understand that. We don't get this because we don't come from a culture where that kind of stuff is offensive, but that's what's taking place. We care more about the unity of you being together than you having whatever liberties you feel like you need to. So for out of a courtesy and just for being nice to people, could you please, could you please think of others better than you think of yourself? What would be best for them? And here's how it plays out when they come together. Okay, carry that into this. Sexual immorality. What does he mean here? Does he mean uh, there are some things in the old covenant literature that are important in regards to sexual morality, um, so therefore you should kind of listen to those things of Scripture? Is he reaching back and pulling back and saying, those are important, make sure you do those things? Maybe, possibly, a lot, some people think that. But it's interesting because he's talking to a group of Gentiles who probably don't have and don't have any affiliation and no knowledge, really, of any of those things. And so are you asking them to go back and research those things and then live according to those principles? Or perhaps it's something different. Or perhaps Paul has been in Antioch preaching and teaching for the last several years, as we know that that's been true, and has had said some things about sexual morality, because how you handle yourself sexually is a big piece of your life, and therefore... Um, and and you, you live in a, a, a city, Antioch was the third biggest city. So Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, in terms of size of that in, that, in the world in that time. It had a very pagan influence, and one of the gods was a goddess of, of love and erotica and all kinds of... So sexually, it was a very sexually progressive culture. So knowing that that's the background, knowing that you're coming from that kind of a history, knowing that in the pagan world, how you handled yourself sexually with other people didn't matter to the gods because all they wanted was to make sure that you were right with them in terms of sacrifice and paying tribute and doing all that kind of stuff. What you did to and for other people didn't matter, didn't matter. So you're coming from that environment and all of a sudden he's trying to say what you do with your body is important. Perhaps this idea, this, this encouragement to refrain from sexual immorality is them saying, when Paul talks about this kind of stuff, listen to him. Well, what did Paul say? Well, we don't exactly know what he said, but we can probably get a good glimpse of it in the letters that he would write after this when these ideas are fully developed as he would write letters to the church in Corinth, the church in Philippi, the church in Colossae. And in those phrases, what are those things that pops up in in terms of um, moral purity in the life of Paul? He would say stuff like this, in your relationships with one another, treat yourself or treat them, excuse me, treat them in the same way that Jesus treated you. In the same way that he died to his own self for, for, for the sake of other people, you die to yourself. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> Do unto others the same way that you would want to be done for yourself. Remember that your body, that, that uh, a high price was paid for you. Therefore, that you, you were bought at a high price. Therefore, honor God with your body. <clears throat> the people that you run into, every single person that you run into is made in the image of God. 
So model yourself like Jesus did, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but gave himself up, but sacrificed himself for the sake of others. Think about that. That changes how you handle sexual morality and moral purity. That I've been bought at a high price. That this thing that I inhabit, this body of mine, is not cheap. It's not easily thrown away. It means something that when I do something physically, it affects me uh, emotionally, it affects me mentally, it affects my psyche, that I cannot distinguish, well, that's just what I do over here, and, I, and, and that has nothing to do with my spiritual life. He's like, it's all integrated, man. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Her body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. When you look at the teachings of Jesus and him and, and Paul trying to integrate those into this, into this world that kind of was about self and instead saying, no, 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 no. Treat that person the way that you would want to be treated. Take that feeling that you want for you, do that for her. Care about your needs, sorry, care about her needs as much as or more than you care about your needs. So what's taking place here? In both of these things, this idea of food, hey, let's be courteous, let's be smart, you would want that done for you. Do it for them. When it comes to sexual immorality, understand the dangers affected it, that oftentimes when it comes to sex, we do whatever is gratifying for us. Hey, stop it. Don't do that. Think about the effects of this. Think about the long-term effects of this. Live that out. Pointing to not Old Testament. It feels Old Testament to us because of what the examples that he used, because of the culture of the time. But they're pointing towards Jesus' new ethic and saying, Listen to Paul when he talks about this kind of stuff. Here's perhaps examples of how this plays out. And then the end of the letter is this. You would do well to adhere by these things. Farewell. That's the end of the letter. That's it. And they gave it to Paul and they gave it to Barnabas and they said, take it up there, deliver the note, let them know. These other people, they're just struggling with the fact that they're trying to distance, you know, the distance themselves and they're trying to mix and match covenants and they've got this Moses thing and they've got this Jesus thing. And we're trying to be courteous. We're trying to make sense of this for ourselves too. But we do genuinely believe that Jesus came and established something new and he invited the entire world and this new covenant is with all nations and he wants to do in you exactly the same thing he did for us. Significant, significant, significant. Last two points. Church leaders unhitch the church from the worldview, the value system, and the regulations of Jewish scriptures. What we see in Acts 15 is this process taking place, and it's messy, and it's time-consuming, and this didn't happen until 20 years after Jesus. I mean, this is not something they figured out immediately. It, you can see it kind of begin to trickle through. Paul got it, then Peter got it, and then Barnabas got it, and then it just kind of goes, oh, okay, all right. We need to completely unhitch from that. That was fine. It was a medium for us. It was a means to an end, but something new has come. All of this stuff is a means to an end. Is there value in understanding the means? Yes. The Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, whatever you want to call it, are the backstory that points us towards the main story. We read that. We read all of these things over then because they tell us about this need for a Savior, a need for a Messiah. And lo and behold, he shows up for us and he's given his life for us. And he comes because God so loved the Israelites, the whole world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe that it took place, would begin to reorient their life around that. If that happened, then that affects how I live and what I do. And I've got a new ethic to live by. 
I begin to see every person that I meet as made in the image of God. And I don't need a chapter and verse to live that out. Listen, the teachings of Paul in this church, the teachings of the church uh, the, the, about Jesus' new ethic is less complicated, far less complicated than the first three quarters of your Bible, but it's also far more demanding. It's less complicated. It's far more demanding. It's far more demanding to meet others and to see you're made in the image of God. He's made in the image of God. Jerk, hate working for him, but made in the image of God. Therefore, there's an honesty, there's a respect and integrity. There's all kinds of things that go into this. How do I love somebody I can't stand? Jesus says, That's, that is the battle, man. It's far more easy to be like, oh, I, I owe the temple a dove. Okay, I'll go figure that out. I'll take care of that on Monday. That's simple. This is far more demanding. So, you would do well, I would do well, to not just rip our Bibles in half and be like, well, don't need that anymore. But as I read that, I allow that to be inspiring and whatever, but as I read it, I go, where's Jesus in this? What, what is this saying? What is this saying about who he is and what's, what, what's, what, what my next steps are in light of this? How do I respond in this way? What do I gotta do? Perhaps if we were the type of church, if you were the type of people, if we were the, uh, an expression of it, uh, that we got this right, <clears throat> and that perhaps we could once again make the church or be a part of a church that is irresistible. And in doing so, follow in the footsteps of our Savior. Isn't that good? That's good. All right. I'm telling you that's good. Anyways, all right. We're going to um, participate in communion together. It's the, the conclusion of a series. We do this for every, um, at the end of every series. Um, so the band's going to come back up. They're going to lead us in one last song. We're going to have three stations down front. There's going to be two on the sides with bread and wine. There's one in the center with gluten-free bread and juice. So pick whichever one fits your age or dietary restrictions. Um, during the song, if you don't want to participate and you're not obligated to by any means, you can stay and just kind of uh, have a time of a uh, moment of reflection. Um, but uh, communion for us has been something the church has been doing for the centuries, ever since it was started. Because Jesus said at the, at the Last Supper, do this stuff in remembrance of me. Remember that this new covenant has been made, that... that uh, uh, that this sacrifice has been made, that we celebrate, we remember, we do it in community, we do it together with a hope, a forward-looking hope, uh, that there is something beyond just this life. So there's so many multiple elements of it, and uh, if you've never participated in communion uh, with us before, that's how it looks. So uh, during the song, you can slip out, make your way to the front, participate, and then I'll come back at the end and uh, do kind of a formal dismissal. But would you stand? I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you for uh, stories like this that perhaps we've read through, I don't know, a handful of times, a hundred times or whatever, and, and uh, every time we do, it's a new insight and a new revelation, and, and, uh, the, and a story that shows us the humanity involved in like even moving away from what they knew to this new thing that you've called them to, and maybe for us come from a, a more conservative background, and so that this is, that we're in that group that's being stretched. Maybe for us, this helps us begin to make sense of why some of those things exist in, in the Old Testament and, and, and the, the, the rightful way to read that so that we don't have to unnecessarily resist it because it just doesn't reconcile with reality what I believe about God. I pray that you would give us uh, the uh, insights to be able to take that into our personal discipline as we 
dive into Scripture for our own, our own self, that we would read through these things. We, we would see uh, the principles behind some of the commandments, that we would see that this idea of not eating this meat that's been strangled is really, there's something deeper involved in that. A courteousness towards people who are kind of maybe behind or, 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 uh, or, or not kind of where we're at. That's just genuine community. Help us to see clearly how we are to respond to the love and to the life that was given for us on our behalf through your son, Jesus Christ, that we celebrate through communion. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard in the cursed act on it. In your name, amen.